Hello and welcome to the Aquarius Podcast. I'm your host, Randy Reed. This episode of the podcast is sponsored by the one and only Aquarium Co-op. Now, we all know that maintaining appropriate water parameters is a cornerstone to any fish, shrimp, or planted tank. And I know personally that testing water with liquid kits is one of my least favorite activities. It's right up there with servicing a canister filter. So thankfully, Aquarium Co-op has recently stepped into the water testing game with their new multi-test strips and ammonia test strips. Not only are these strips quick, easy, and accurate, but they're also value-priced. The multi-test strip comes with 200 test strips that test six different parameters per strip. Nitrate, nitrite, GH, KH, pH, and chlorine, and the ammonia test strip offering comes with 100 strips. You've got no reason not to stay on top of your water parameters and ensure your success in this hobby. Now, on to the interview. Today's date is Tuesday, July 13th, 2021. My guests today are Rosario LaCourt and Joe Ferdenzi. These two gentlemen are absolutely legends in this hobby, and I'm always humbled to talk with them. So Rosario and Joe, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Randy. Nice to be back with you again. Go ahead, Joe. I'm sorry. Your turn. No, no. Thank you, Randy. That was a very nice introduction, but (laughs) uh, just to correct you on one thing, Randy, Rosario is a legend I, i'm not you're okay, you're up there joe you're up so let's say no, let, let's, let's say Ros- clear. <laughs> let's say rosario <laughs> is not. like a legend among legends but you're 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 nothing to you're nothing to uh discredit there joe come on now i i know you're being very humble and um i'll say the disclaimer for everybody listening okay. to this is that we are doing right. we're, we're making this interview happen via uh, the powers of the internet, but it's actually like cell phone over internet to cell phone. So this is not the greatest audio quality. That being said, we have Rosario and Joe. So I think everybody should be able to tolerate slightly less audio quality for what I believe is going to be a fantastic interview where Randy doesn't say anything. And it's just Rosario and Joe being awesome, talking about super cool fish stuff <laughs> and what... Well, uh, listen, uh, listen, Randy, Rosario and I, we... Uh, you know, we agree that your program, your podcasts are fantastic, that you're a terrific interviewer. So, uh, you know, uh, if, I, if I can speak for Rosario, I can tell you Absolutely. that we welcome your participation and your questions <laughs> because they, they're always very good. They always lead to interesting points. So feel free to interrupt Rosario or myself anytime you wish please I'll, okay i'll i'll try but one of the it is going to be a challenge though with the three of us with no video to like have proper like conversational cueing back and forth so i'll try i'll try mm-hmm. to minimize it to like really good questions that i think maybe pop up in my head which um you know we'll see if that happens but yeah joe i'll, I'll let you just take it away so you know to, to set the stage a little bit more and you know i'm, I'm lying now because now i'm saying that i i am actually going to talk when i said i wasn't going to talk um but you know you and rosario go way way back and on top of just your relationship with Rosario, you're also a bit of a historian, right? So there's kind of this natural intersection of your friendship with Rosario, so you have a personal connection with him, but you also do massive amounts of, of research and just kind of as a right. collector, as a historian. So those right. two things right. intersect. And, you know, even though I've had conversations with Rosario, conversations that are not recorded, just, you know, him kind of walking me through stuff in my fish room and giving me advice, um, reading his fantastic book, An Aquarius Journey by Rosario LaCourt, um, which you would help with that one, Joe. Like, you know, there, there's things that I know about Rosario 
because of that, but it is nothing in comparison to to what you know from Rosario, and so you can kind of tease out what maybe are some of the gems um, of his experience that I just will never know about. And maybe Rosario, because he's done so much, he's just forgotten about it because he's done so many things. <laughs> so that's kind of setting yeah, the stage here. Yeah. And that, that's why I'm saying Randy's going to be quiet in the background um, and kind of okay. let this be the Joe Ferdenzi Aquarius podcast. Uh, you know, you're, you're the guest host, no, Joe. No, no, but... <laughs> Yeah, no, I get you. Well, you know, first of all, see, you've already made a very good point about my interest in the history of this terrific hobby and how it intersects with Rosario. Because, you see, Rosario is living history. I mean, the people I've read about, Rosario has met. The the little, what I can get from reading old magazines or books, doesn't capture what Rosario knows because Rosario knew the people. So he knew their personalities. He, he knew little things about them, little anecdotal things that are never captured in any of the books. And one of the, I, I just remember this one incident very vividly because it just illustrates what we're talking about. Many, many years ago, you know, I was perusing various old magazines like I normally do. And I ran across an article in which um, Herbert Axelrod, who was the founder and uh, you know publisher of the famous Tropical Fish Hobbyist magazine, uh, uh, and back in the 50s, he's writing an article about the Cardinal Tetra, right? Now, I had always known since the beginnings of my starting the hobby when I was like 11, 12 years old, in the, so that's the mid-60s, I'd always believed that, you know, okay, uh, Dr. Axelrod, because to me he was Dr. Axelrod, um, had gone into the Amazon jungles and had discovered this, this tetra known as the Cardinal Tetra, and that's why it had been named after him and all of that. And that, that, that okay, for Based on what, I don't know, but that was my belief. So I'm reading this article from the early 50s, which, of course, when I started in the hobby, I didn't have access to it. So uh, I'm reading it, and there's like he, he drops a footnote in this article about the cat Cardinal Tetra saying, I want to thank Saul Kessler of the Fish Bowl in New Jersey for supplying me with the specimens of the Cardinal Tetra that I sent to you know, the scientists who described them. And uh, and I said to myself, I don't understand. That doesn't make any sense to me. Why would he need specimens from this guy who owns a fish store in New Jersey to send to the scientist in Washington, D.C., so that he can describe this cardinal tetra? I thought he discovered it, you know? So one day I'm talking to Rosario because Rosario... I think we were driving together in a car, you came to pick me up to give a, a presentation at the uh, greater city. You came to my home. You remember? That's where we discussed it. Yeah. Yeah. And well, well that's sudden, very possible. Yeah, it know, was. I've, I've don't, forget, don't forget, don't forget, don't yeah. forget, Joe, my memory is better than yours. <laughs> I know. I know that. That's why I noticed I'm not contradicting you, you know? Uh, <laughs> all I know is we've we've been together a lot, Rosario and I. I've often visited him and his lovely wife Jeannie at their home. You know, to me, it's 
it's always uh, just a wonderful experience when I go there. But I, I don't want to, uh, you know, lose my train of thought here. You so have me on the edge I of my seat, Joe. Keep I going. I, yeah, I mentioned this to Rosario. I go, you know, Rosario, I don't, I don't understand this. And, of course, Rosario knew Saul Kessler. He knew that pet shop, the fishbowl, okay? He had been there. He knew this gentleman named Kessler and everything. So, of course, Rosario was able to say to me, well, here's the reason. Go ahead, Rosario. You tell the story, the Saul Kessler uh, connection to the Cardinal. Yeah, well, the, the true story is that Saul Kessler had a, uh, a, a certain connection with Paramount Aquarium, which was operated by Hugo uh, Schnell. I think I got his first name right. Where was it? I don't know. I think it was Hugo. And he was the owner, along with his brother-in-law, who was the uh, at his place down in Florida. I think that's all outlined in the book. But anyway, Saul said to me that uh, he had a very good rapport with Paramount Aquarium, and he instructed them that if they ever get anything that's unique or really exciting, he'd be willing to pay extra money for it. Saul, Saul had a, a terrific-looking store. It was really... At the time, it was really one of the finest stores in the metropolitan area. It was He had a lot of cleanliness, a lot of variety, and they were displayed beautifully. And he, it was just a, a nice outline. Anyway, uh, Sal told, told us to uh, Hugo and said, just keep these fish for me and I'll pay you handsomely for whatever you have. So he got a call from Hugo Snell one day and he said, hey, I really have a beautiful fish here. You got to see it. So he told him about it. He went there and he saw the Cardinal Tetra. So he bought a hundred of them, I believe. I think it went for a dollar a piece or two dollars. I forget what it was. Don't forget a dollar was a, a real buck in those days. And this was back in the 50s. So he went over and he came back to, to a fishbowl and there he had him. So he calls Herbie on the phone. He said to him, hey, Herb, you got to see this fish that I got from Paramount. You're not going to believe it. So he says, you got to come down and see it. So he comes down and he sees it. He says, so you buy some of them. Because I asked Herb myself. I used to go to Herbie's place each, uh, maybe once a month. And I would uh, bring fish over to uh, uh, TFH, which was located in, in Jersey City at the time. So I would bring new fish over and he would photograph them. And he would display them in his magazine, a particular article or whatever. I never got credit for it, but that was okay. It, that was fine with me. And uh, so anyway, the, uh, he, he's got the fish, and he, this is from a personal conversation I had with Axelrod. So I said to him, hey, Herb, you know, I said, you, you're in good with, uh, with Schultz, who was Leonard Schultz, who was the curator of fishes at the Smithsonian. He said, you're in good with him. How come he never named the fish after you? You did that book together. And by the way, I couldn't say it, but it was one of the worst books ever published. It had no information at all in there. But anyway, he he took the fish and he got right on a plane and went down to Washington. This is the fish I want named after me. That's how he got it. So he named it in his honor. In the meantime, Paramount had sent some to Dr. George S. Myers, who was working in uh, uh, on the West Coast. He was involved in Stanford University. And Stan Weitzman, 
who later became a, a lifelong friend to me. In fact, he wrote the forward to my book. And uh, he, Stan and Dr. Myers worked on the Cardinal Tetra because they got specimens from Paramount earlier, and they decided to name the fish Cardinalis. And because they didn't think anybody else would be working on it, and one of the unsold or one of the agreements scientists have with one another, if they discover that they have a fish that someone else is working on, they immediately pull themselves away from it if they were uh, first on the scene to, to describe a fish. So uh, there was nobody that was involved that knew about it. So they were really taking their time about describing it, and it was a big mistake on their part because he had went down to, uh, he flew down to Washington and instructed Schultz, this is the fish I want named in my honor, which he did. And uh, in order to beat the Stanford publication, whoever describes the fish and publishes it first is kind of the, what you'd call a lucky winner. Well, it just so happened that Herbie flew down to Washington. He had him rush this, and then he published the findings in his magazine, which was something you just don't do. It should have been published in a scientific journal. And, uh, and then... I think Joe can take it from there when it comes to dates. He knows a little bit about the dating, and uh, and then he, it was named in, in Herbie's honor. And, and then about five years later, he made up this story that he met by, a, and I heard this story too from him, which I know is wasn't truthful. He met a, a, a missionary, a Catholic missionary priest down there who showed him where the fish were, and that's how he found it. Oh wow! Yeah, it was a big fish story. <laughs> it was like five years later, and and there's you know there's a reason for that. I think Alan Fetcher, who used to be the editor of the Aquarium magazine and uh, worked for Ennis, told me years ago, back in the early fifties or mid fifties, when Alan and I became friends, he said they took a uh, they they realized that every five years there's almost a complete turnover. Like 95% of the people, there's a turnover in the cram societies. They notice that. So you could see if you wait five years, everybody that saw this five years earlier had been forgotten about, and the people that knew had come on the scene, just like now. But if you ask 95% of the people in the hobby, they probably never heard of Axelrod. They probably never even heard of me either, even though I'm still here because I've not been active at all lately. And so it doesn't take long for people to forget who, who's that? Oh, I don't know. You, you don't know that guy? No, I never heard of him. And that's what happened. So you never, yeah. you never, and, they, and that's how they can, he probably waited five years and then he came up with this story that was concocted. Yeah. Yeah. And, 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 and then now Joe really knows the, the how the dating uh, uh, affected the uh, outcome. Go ahead, Joe. Take your turn. No, no, but but you see, I, I mean, Rosario just told that story, you know, wonderfully. Uh, but you see, he made my point. You see, like, who but Rosario, who's alive today that can tell you about Saul Kessler and the fishbowl, what it was like on the inside, you know, what kind of a story he had? Who else can tell you that 
he had a relationship with the guy who owned one of the owners of Paramount. Now, Paramount, for your listeners, uh, in case they don't know this, you know, back in the in those years, in the 40s, in the 50s or whatever, and into the 60s, they were like one of America's, if not America's leading importers of wild tropical fish, especially from South America. They, they had collectors in South America. They had a special plane, their own plane, to bring shipments from South America uh, to New York because they, they were always located in New York. And um, yeah, I think they had a B-25, which, as, as an old Air Force veteran myself, was really a hotshot plane during World War II. Right. And they, they stripped that and they made that into a cargo ship and they flew that plane back and forth. I mean, I'm I'm pretty sure it was a B-25. I'm, yeah, I'm, impressed, I'm impressed and sad at the same time that there was a company that um, was doing so well in the hobby that they actually fielded their own aircraft for the, you know, for importing, right, for that transportation of the fish, where now, like, you know, nobody's doing that and they're just finding space on commercial airlines to, you know, ship the fish up to us because they're, right. like, it's just not as strong as it was at that time. Or maybe... I don't know. Maybe it's just um, maybe maybe some of the, the the cost economies have kind of changed a little bit, and it's just inherently cheaper to do that. And maybe fish are more plentiful. I, I don't know the reason, but I think from like a romantic standpoint, like the the this vision of a fleet of aircraft that are actually bringing fish up from South America to feed like this very hungry Western, you know, American and European right, market right. for for tropical fish, it's, it just has like a very right. romantic feel to it. It does, it does, and it, and you know, after the war was over, of course, the the United States had all these surplus uh, aircraft, and you know, a lot of them got destroyed because they didn't know what to do with them. So I'm just guessing that Paramount was able to pick up this old bomber, World War II bomber, for for a very reasonable price, and then, like Rosario said, they retrofitted the inside to hold you know, cans of tropical fish. And then, you know, I guess they had their own pilot, which probably was the most expensive part of the whole thing to have your own pilot flying back and forth from South America. But yeah, it was quite, quite a thing that, as you point out, Randy, nobody does today. I don't know of any company that has its own, you know, uh, plane, special plane flying from South America to the United States. Um, And, so this example of this story with the Cardinal Tetra, you know, just shows how only certain people, you know, people like myself who like to read the old literature would even stumble on this reference in the 1950s to getting this, these Cardinal Tetras from Saul Kessler at the fishbowl. Like Rosario said, in later years, uh, Axelrod definitely wrote articles in which he claimed to have discovered the cardinal tetra no ifs ands or buts about that i mean i'm i'm not making stuff up it's it's there in writing okay and it's probably because as rosario said as the years go by very few people remember what happened five years or 10 years and god forbid you know 40 years earlier so it's easy to spin stories who's around to contradict them. I mean, nobody except people like Rosario and, um, you know, Alan Fletcher, who was another fantastic guy that Rosario mentioned, who unfortunately 
passed away in, within the last year, so he's not around. But he he flew on that plane, that Paramount plane. Okay, that's right. He worked for Innis at the Aquarium Magazine. Like you said it was it was almost glued together with with string and wire. <laughs> <laughs> there goes no. my romantic vision then. <laughs> yeah, no, 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 no. And by the way, and by the way, here's a little bit of history for you. The B twenty five is a is a plane that uh, Jimmy Doodle used to put on an aircraft carrier, and they sell pretty close to Japan and shocked the world when they flew a one way mission. It was they weren't going to come back. These guys knew they were going to be killed. A lot of these pilots, and only a few guys made it. They bombed Tokyo with that plane B-25 because they didn't have the fuel capacity to make it back to the aircraft carrier. Plus, it might have been a little tough to land on an aircraft carrier because it was a light bomber, and they didn't really have the runway. Uh, but that's the plane that was Billy, uh, Jimmy Doolittle used to bomb uh, Tokyo. Well, and yeah. All the planes were cr- eventually crashed. Some of them got back, got into China, and the uh, pilots were saved. Jimmy Lou. Doodle was one of them. Anyway, that's that's getting off the beaten path, but just just a little bit of other history. That's a bonus. Might, that's a yeah, bonus might, for the listeners right there. Yeah, and and then uh, just to return to your theme, Randy, um, uh, about this intersection of you know people who do historical research and Rosario. Uh, recently, uh, Rosario and I participated in a Zoom meeting of the Long Island Killifish Association. And our guest speaker was a gentleman named Bobby Ellerman. Okay. Now, Bobby Ellerman, uh, when he was 12 years old, was already active in, in aquarium circles. Uh, and he's a little younger than I am. And he, he read Rosario's articles and, and, and had the wherewithal to write to Rosario. He wrote to Rosario when he was 12 years old, asking him all kinds of questions and everything. And so uh, Rosario uh, kind of took him under his wings. And uh, Bobby Ellerman and Rosario have known each other since Bobby was like this. Bobby Ellerman was 12 years old. But here's the thing. Bobby Ellerman is the consummate uh, historian when it comes to uh, old-time fish breeders and who was the first guy to bring in a fish and who developed what and, and this kind of thing, right? And he was giving this program, part one, because it's very long and very detailed. I mean, the Bobby did a tremendous amount of work with this uh, history of killifish, okay? But one of the things he was talking about, which I had never realized, was when annual killifish, what are known as annual killifish, you know, those killifish, just again, for the benefit of your listeners who may not be familiar with that, you know, those are killifish that in the wild live in seasonal pools of water. And when those pools dry up, all the adult fish die. But they have a strategy where they lay their eggs in the mud or the sand or the gravel of their temporary pools. And they survive the drying period. And then when the rains return, those eggs hatch out and then the cycle continues. Okay. Well, I, you know, since I joined the, uh, the American Killifish Association back in the 70s, you know, of course, I read up and learned all about annual killifish. But what I didn't realize 
until I was listening to this story that Bobby Ellerman was telling us that was that in the beginning, when annual killifish were first coming into the hobby, no one really understood this phenomena so about annualism. So they didn't understand that they had to like incubate the eggs for months and months before they could wet them and get fried. And, and that so very it was not well understood. Well, here's where Rosario comes in, because after Bobby gave his presentation, you know, we got commentary from Rosario, which is always, always informative. And uh, and Rosario can tell us from from personal experience, because he worked with some of those early annuals and he can tell us about the trials and tribulations that people were going through. Uh, understanding, trying to understand what this annualism was about. Right, Rosario? Tell That's us about right, some yeah. of the first annual killifish you worked with. Well, one of the first ones I worked with was, uh, uh, it was a, what we call Terralibus paroensis. I forget the generic term I use now on it. I forgot. But anyway, <clears throat> it was a very handsome-looking fish, and it came out of Peru. And I, I remember being over at Henny Hessel's place, and he's a uncle to uh, your friend uh, that had, uh, what was his name again? Yeah, yes. Uh, what Rosario Rose is referring to is, he's referring to a gentleman by the name of Henry Hessel. And Henry Hessel had a big wholesale uh, fish uh, company uh, in, in New York City. And he happens to have been a brother-in-law, now follow me, stay close with this, he happened to be the brother-in-law of, a, uh, of uh, a gentleman named Everett Burns, who became the father-in-law of a good friend of mine by the name of Steve Grubel. And what's the significance of this? Well, Everett Burns started this pet shop in New York City called Cameo Pet Shop, and that store was in existence for get ready for this 70 years from 1947 to 2016 wow that's unheard of unheard <clears throat> of for pet shops okay <laughs> to be in existence for 70 years in the same family and uh henry hessel because he, uh, he owned this big wholesale place he used to get in a lot of exotic fish and when his brother-in-law everett after the war, was looking for work. He, he didn't have a job. Henry said to Everett, hey, why don't you open a tropical fish store, and I'll tell you what, you got first choice. You got first dibs on any of the fish I have in my wholesale operation. So, of course, Everett opened up this pet shop called Cameo, and he always had the best fish uh, retail because he had first choice among Henry Hessel's a stock, which was, incidentally, Henry Hessel's store was called Roosevelt Aquarium, for those who care. Okay, <laughs> Rosario, so that's Henry yeah. Hessel. Go ahead. Yeah, it was Roosevelt Aquarium. That's correct. And I knew Henry Hessel. In fact, two annuals that we bought at the same time, uh, of course, that was in Paranoensis, was White Sinolibus, called at the time it was called Sinolibus White. I, I don't think they used the term Sinolibus. I think they called it let me see if my memory can steer back that far. I don't remember the genus now that they 
placed it in, but uh, it came out of Germany. And uh, then the other fish was Nothobranchius guntheri. It was the first Nothob we had. And I remember we paid $3.50 for a pair, which was pretty good money in those days. Anyway, I bought a pair of each, and I did quite well with them. In fact, the, uh, that was in 1957. And I, I was telling Joe last night in the conversation we had, uh, because they are annuals and they breed in the soil uh, that their ponds are constructed of, I decided my my father was a great uh, gardener. He was, of course, born in Sicily, and everybody from Sicily is a great farmer. And he was digging up the garden for during the spring months, preparing for the summer time when he was going to plant his good goods and everything. <laughs> I always laugh when I hear that term. It's a big squash, and they call it good goods. <laughs> yeah, hell of a name, isn't it? And anyway, yeah. um, they, uh, he was turning the garden over, the soil over. And so I said, well, you know, I got so many Guntheri eggs. What am I going to do with them? I, I, can't, I can't raise this many and, and, and get them out on the market or even give them away. So I, uh, I had thousands of eggs, and I decided to get a tray full of mud, and I filled it up with mud. It was a uh, baking dish, um, and, and I gently, with an eyedropper, squirted the eggs all over the surface of that baking dish, and then I covered it with about a quarter inch of soil. And then I waited a couple months, and I put water on it gently. I put a piece of paper tally on it gently, poured water on it so I wouldn't stir it up and have mud all over that I wouldn't be able to see what was in there. But when they hatched out, I said, what am I going to do with it? It looked like a pearl garami spawn. I mean, it was fry from one end of the glass dish to the other. I never saw so many young fish that hatched out. And I had done that in what really happens in a while. I wanted to see because in those days, we used peat moss as a, uh, as a material to, to, uh, incubate the eggs for a period of time that we decided they needed or required in order to hatch out. But anyway, that was one of the experiences in why yeah. I... Well, uh, well, you, you, you uh, I mean, just to interrupt for one second, Rosario, I mean, you just heard him say, and he says it so modestly, but he said he had thousands of eggs. Now, this is, this is, this is a hobbyist, okay? This is not some big breeding facility. I mean, you don't even meet anybody anymore who who can tell you, oh yeah, I have Nothobranchius guntheri and I have like a thousand eggs. I mean, this is what built Rosario's reputation. You see, I mean, nobody breeds them in that kind of quantity. All right, uh, but before you get to the Peruensis, uh, Rosario, uh, let me ask you this question: Did you have Nothobranchius recovii? Before the Guntheri or after the Guntheri? No, I think I think we got it after the Guntheri. Okay. I may have seen it. I may have seen it okay. before I saw the Guntheri because yeah. we knew about it. We knew it was a very right. stunning fish. Yes, because I was just about to say that, that for those who know or those who don't know, of, of the Nothobranchius, and there's many, many species, Rakovii has been around a long time, but it is still regarded as w- one of the most spectacularly colored freshwater fish of all time. Uh, yeah. And Rosario was one of the first people to breed that fish. Um, 
but go ahead. I'm sorry. Go ahead with the parowensis. If I could interrupt yes, real quick, I, I would say that I've actually either had the Nothiobrachis uh, gunthrite or the Rakovia. I can't remember which one, but this was fairly early in the fish room a couple years ago. Um, and I, what did I say? Did I get did I get two pairs? Um, you know, tried the peat moss dish in there and just didn't didn't do well with them. Let's just say that. So I, I can attest to firsthand that. Um, not that I'm the best killifish breeder or anything, but uh, I did not have success with these guys. So I certainly didn't have thousands of, uh, of killifish fry. Um, and yes, it is absolutely a stunning fish. I mean, these things are amazing. And yeah, to kind of hear Rosario, you know, just um, uh, say, you know, just how successful he was with modesty. What I'd like to know, Rosario, before you continue with the other killifish species is, you know, for people that are interested in Nothiobrachis, like what would be some tips uh, to help them be successful uh, with this fish? Well, the big thing is, uh, and the important thing is the proper food. If you feed them with nutritious food like uh, two effects, which is kind of tough to get, if you can get live Daphne and things like that, and even frozen brine shrimp, anything that was alive. And uh, I'm not too much of a fan of white worms and things like that because my main goal with my fish is I want to see them produce the beautiful colors that they have. So many of them have gorgeous colors, and if you don't feed them properly when they hatch out and reach adulthood, they really don't show their true uh, colors that they have. And, and some of these fish are stunning. And so it's important that they get food rich in carotenoids, in which they get that from from algaes and things like that, plant life, and they convert that into carotenoids and then the fish get it, and they, of course, uh, their body, body manufactures the results by having beautiful coloration. And I've, I've been through all that. If you want to read about it, I pretty well outline that in a book. I wouldn't want to be uh, redundant here on this uh, conversation. Oh, not at all. Not at all, Rosario. But yeah. uh, as far as the paroenses was concerned, that was really a... I'm sorry, Rosario, I just got to interrupt you for one second now. Sure. Because the other thing, Randy, is about these nothobranchias, just so your your listeners are aware of this, should they decide to try them and everything. Sometimes what happens, and I know because I've I've personally experienced this, if you get nothobranchias adults from commercial sources, what often is the case is that the fish, when you get them, they look beautiful. They're gorgeous. They're full-blown adults and gorgeous as it could be, but they're too old. <laughs> yeah. They're old. I can see that. And that's why you will not get good egg production from them. I mean, Rosario can speak to this better than I, but you have to breed them when you know they reach a certain age and then they peak. And then once they're over that peak, they, they, you know, you're not going to get good egg production from them. Is that right, Rosario? Yeah, that's right. It's like trying to get Gravel Gertie to give birth to the baby. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, Gravel yeah, Gertie. About, yeah. So well, that's that, why you you really you need you need to when you acquire these fish, you need to know from the breeder or from the source, like and 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 you know how old they are. And and this is very hard to do with commercial sources because they honestly don't know. And they're between a rock and a hard place, the commercial sources, because if they ship teeny fish to their buyers, their buyers undoubtedly will complain, like, what did you ship me? You see? But the fact of the matter is, 
the smaller they are, the better off you are as a breeder because then you can raise them. And when they get to be about, how old would you say, Rosario, is the peak uh, age? I don't know. I think uh, once they reach close to a year, that's uh, I would say you can keep them longer than that. Yeah. Once they get close to that, they're pretty well gone. But if you raise them right, you you can really get breeders going a mile a minute, at four right. or five months. Yeah, but you they see, they grow have very to be rapidly. Yeah. Year old. You know, as Rosario is saying, that's the problem, Randy. Uh, you, and you might not have had success only because you you had gorgeous looking fish, but for all you knew, knew they were already like 13, 14 months old. You know? I would like I would like to hide behind that as that being the reason. Um, what do you so then <laughs> so then I mean because they they ended up expiring probably within six months of me actually getting them, um, and I just kind of attributed it to the male being overly aggressive with the females. Um, no. and yeah, no. so then so annuals they don't actually just live for one year if in a captive situation. What would you expect like a Nothiobrachis to actually like? What is the lifespan of one of those fish? So we, we've kind of established what the prime breeding age is, but how long in a captive, well-maintained, well-fed environment do you think they should live? And that, and if your answer is going to be like 17 years, it's going to make me feel very bad. No, 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 no. no. I mean, uh, Rosario, I don't know what Rosario would say, but I, I would say, you know, I, I've known of nothos that have lived like two years, you know. Uh, That's right. That's true. Yeah. But, but. But from that 12 months to 24 months, they might still look good for the first half of that, but they're not, they're not prime breeding uh, fish anymore, you know? Let so me that's ask, the thing. Let me ask you something, Randy. When you purchase these fish, were the males a good size and the females much smaller? Hmm. I mean, it's been a couple of years now. I mean, I definitely know that the males were full-on, like, specimen stunning, um, and I would say the females, I don't think they were that much different in size. I think I, I do recall them. I think the males are probably larger, but I don't know. I can't remember the size discrepancy between the male and female. Yeah. Oftentimes the breeders will raise all the young together. If they don't have a good solid source of live food and water changes, what happens is the male is very aggressive and his aggression. He's always spawning the females. And the females never get a chance to grow mm. because they're always all the energy is going into the the uh, the uh, ovulation process. They're producing eggs. They're like chickens. They, I I did an experiment one time. I had huge gunterai females when I was in the instant fish uh, thing, uh, which was a novelty, which I knew wouldn't last. Yeah, I did have. I had uh, when I was involved in the instant fish. Uh, Right. with a fish, butterfly right. yeah, in New York. I had some female gunthari that were huge, and uh, they were wonderful breeders, and I separated them, and I put one pair by itself. A couple pairs, I gave them a, a tank for their own, and uh, I bred them over, at that time, Green Sand Marl, which was uh, one of my innovations. I wrote a big article on uh, I think it was uh, spawning, spawning mediums for the annual fishes was the title of it. I think it was published in the, uh, in the AKA journal. But anyway, I took a, an average recording and found that those females, which are huge, produce about 45 eggs per day. 
That's a lot of eggs when you figure it. they're like that, chickens. That, yeah, that is phenomenal. Forty-five yeah, 40, eggs a day. I got oh an average. Yeah, I got an average of forty-five eggs a day. That's why I had that big spawn, where it looked like a pearl gourami spawn. If you ever spawn pearl gouramis or any of the mouth brooders, you know what kind of spawns they have. They have an awful lot because an awful lot of them perish. They don't make it, and so only the strongest survive. But that's just about what happens with the uh, with the Guntheri. You know, they 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 produce each day. They produce so many eggs. As long as nutrition is there, and they're getting a good balanced diet, a lot of live food, but they're going to produce a lot, a lot of eggs, and that's what happens. And I I promise Rosaria, we're going to get back to the Parowensis because you you played a very big role in that uh, with that South American annual. Uh, which was then, you know, like a brand, brand new fish. But uh, you just said something very interesting about the instant fish phenomena, right? Yes. Now, just so your listeners know this, Rosario actually didn't sell his fish eggs to the company that marketed the instant fish product. That was a thing that came out in the 1950s that was marketed by the the toy company Whammo, okay, they they were famous for hula hoops and all kinds of things, novelties, you know. And uh, we we have this story in the book. Rosario tells the story in the book about how this other company, when they saw that Whammo had been successful with this instant fish kit, you know, they wanted to market a competitor product. So they eventually approached Rosario about supplying these Nothobranchias guntheri eggs for their version of instant fish. And their version, their product was called Quickie Fish, all right? <laughs> and we, we have a picture of, you know, one of the very few surviving examples of this product uh, in the book. Because, of course, Whammo was a huge company. They had huge distribution channels. The company that uh, Rosario supplied the eggs for was not quite as big. They didn't have as much success as Whammo. But at the time, let me tell you, this whole quote-unquote instant fish phenomena was was huge. So much so that the the ever, uh, you know, Barnum and Bailey type uh, uh, Herbert Axelrod decided he wanted to get into it, okay, because he thought, oh, Whammo's making so much money, let me get into this thing. So he came out, he also at the same time came out with his version, which was called, you ready for this? Fish in a Flash. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And that was the story of his life. He touted this. I mean, he was the consummate, you know, showman, Herbert Axelrod. He really touted was. this thing as like, oh, my fish in a flash is going to be better than anybody else's product because I'm using certain kinds of annual fish that are easier and this and that. You know, it's just like a lot of – and this is all in his magazine. I mean, I'm not making this stuff up. I, I read it, you know, his, his, his self-promoting stuff about this fish in a flash well let me tell you the only thing that was flashy about it was that it was gone in a flash (laughs) okay it was (laughs) he never 
he never made any money off of it. I don't know if he ever even got any of the kits out or anything like that. Well, I can give you the answer for that because yeah, I, knew, I knew the breeder who was doing it for him, and he was, he was sort of the same type of guy. I liked him, but, you know, he was a blustery guy. He was born in, I hate to say this because Joe and I are shy, and he was born in Italy, <laughs> and he was a very blusterful guy, uh, a, a kind of a loud a little, a little on the uncouth side, and I won't mention his name. It wouldn't be charitable to do that. And uh, he didn't really know what he was doing, and he had him because, I don't know if I told you this, Joe, but the night that the, the uh, father and son-in-law and son were in my kitchen having me sign a contract because they were advancing me some money to begin to uh, set my my place up, I had to get rid of all my fish. I had a a wonderful collection of rare fish. I had to ship them out to friends and hope I could get them back because I knew this was going to be a flash in the pan. Anytime you're dealing with a live, live material with people, with the general public, it's not going to work. It never does work. And so anyway, uh, uh, I forgot my point. Now, what I was yeah, trying this, to make. this guy, this Italian guy. He oh, was yeah, the Italian guy. He was supplying the eggs to Axelrod. Right, he was supplying the eggs to Axelrod, and he really was a bustery guy and uh, kind of a braggart and, as I said, uncouth. Right. And, he, and, and I knew he would never be a success at it, and he wasn't. And so he couldn't. What they were doing, they were shipping the eggs out fresh. You can't do that because many eggs go uh, uh, towards fungus right away. What we did in my in, in our eggs, what I did was I kept them in trays for at least a week. And when I saw the development, then we we put them in the, in the spawning mediums to, to be shipped out. So I produced a quarter of a million eggs inside of three months. Wow! Did and, you hear that? A quarter of a million Jeez. eggs. These were oh counted. These eggs God. were counted. These were counted. These were counted. Now you know these eggs yeah, were counted. Yeah, of course, because they, they were paying you half a penny yeah. per egg, yeah. right? Right. Yep. Yeah. And so it didn't, it's getting it, a half a penny per egg. Wow. Yeah. I had a, and my uncle, not my uncle, but my cousin, who was the mayor of Elizabeth at the time, he came in on a coattail uh, uh, with uh, with Eisenhower when Eisenhower ran for president. He, he came in because he, he was Republican. And he uh, came in on his coattails and was the mayor of Elizabeth. He's the one that drew up the contract for me and didn't ever charge me. And, you know, lawyers get big bucks for stuff like that, but he did it for me for nothing. And he really looked out for me. And uh, that's what happened. It didn't last long. And I knew it wouldn't, but I I got a wonderful fish house out of it. (laughs) It's something I dreamed about. Yeah. There was no way I could have done it on my own because I had five kids and I was a, it was a, 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 a wood pattern maker. Even though we were highly skilled as craftsmen, we really didn't get that much money. And uh, I couldn't do what I did with that fish room. I mean, they advanced me the money, and I all the money I made from the fish eggs, I plowed right back. And I had, I had a fish house that was, I had people from all over the world. And I don't, I, I can I tell this story or? We yeah, go ahead. Yeah, so I, I, I think I wrote about this in a book, but it's worth retelling for those who didn't get the book, and I'm not trying to promote the book. Go buy the book, people. Uh, if you haven't got it, just go yeah. buy it. Jump on Amazon. Come on. I'll put a link in this uh, episode. But go for it, Rosario. 
yeah, yeah. And, no, I mean Randy. Uh, Randy, you know when he the last time he uh, interviewed you, Rosario. Uh, uh, you know, and the first time he interviewed, and the second time he interviewed, you probably, I don't know if you remember, Rosario, but before he would introduce you, he would promote your book. And I know people, based on their comments, uh, said, oh, I'm buying the book, or I bought the book, and whatever. And thank you, Randy, for, for being so kind about, yeah, My you know, pleasure. Because we're very, I mean, Rosario wrote it so that, you know, it's all his book, you know, but here at you know at greater city you know which is my aquarium club we're very proud of that book we're very very proud of having had a role in publishing that book because it's a it's a book unlike any other it's a milestone in the aquarium hobby as far as as a book goes and um as it has been pointed out it's, it's and you pointed this out randy it's got lots of beautiful photographs it's not just words you know it's just a, a bunch of words. It's also got beautiful photography, historical photography in black and white, beautiful fish photographs that Rosario has taken because, I mean, and Rosario hasn't mentioned this yet again, uh, but, you know, again, he's very modest. He, he's a fantastic photographer. You know, he talks about his skills in pattern making, but he's got tremendous artistic ability and, um, and that shows in his photos. So I'm sorry, Rosario, to interrupt you, but go, Go ahead. What are you going to say about your your fish house? Yeah, well, I had a fish house. was uh, It was it was beautiful, and I to this day I still miss the good old days. I had I was sitting down writing a book one evening in the house I am in, living in presently, and this was uh, probably about maybe twelve, thirteen years ago. And I said to Jeannie, she was sitting in a watching TV in the living room. And, Plus the living room and the dining room was all one huge big room, and I was at the dining room dining room table, uh, writing some of the chapters towards the end. I was kind of finishing up the book, so I said to her, "Hey, honey, I said, have you had any idea how many people have been to our home? Because I have a a, a book that I found out in the meadows, which we call the Meadowland here, which is on the outskirts of the Newark Airport." And I used to have some daffia holes out there, and I used to get daffia and mosquito larvae. I mean, I had so much live food, and that was what really I attributed a great deal of my success to live food. I had an inexhaustible amount of live food. But anyway, uh, one day I saw a pile of junk that somebody threw out, or, and there was this beautiful book. It was a daily reminder book. I thought oh, I could use this for uh, making notes. So I have this book. And there's a lot of notes in there from the early 60s of some of the fish I bred and, uh, and uh, how successful it was. And so I decided one day I had a visitor from Africa and I said, yeah, you know, I think I'm going to start having people that come visit me put their name in the book. So he was the first one. He was a scientist from South Africa. In fact, he got my name of all people, Saul Kessler, the guy we mentioned earlier. He was in his store, and he saw Kessler, you have to go visit Rosario Court. She didn't see his fish room. So he did. That's how I got to meet this guy. So from then on, anybody that came to my fish room, I had him sign my book. So I just nonchalantly speaking to Jeannie this one evening as I'm writing the, one of the final chapters. Honey, I said, do you have any idea how many people have visited our home? 
Now, mind you, this is an Italian family. If you know anything about Italians, and a lot of Latin people are like this, they're very hospitable when you come to their home. They can't do enough for you, even though they may not have much in the cupboard. Somehow, they get something out, and you will have some kind of entertainment or some kind of refreshment. And that's what we did. We had people that had refreshments. We had a lot of people that stayed overnight, and uh, they had dinner or lunch with us. And so I said, do you have any idea how many people have been to our house? Oh, she said, at least 100. I said, no, Jake, try again. She says, how about 200? No, try again. Oh, 300? No. You know what? I said, honey, just forget about it. I don't think you're going to get it. it uh, see, I cheated because just before I asked her that question, I counted how many people were in, in that book. Now, I should have started that book in the mid-50s. I started having this recording the guy from Africa uh, in 1962, I think it was, or 63. And I said, no, we had 532 people from all over the world. And wow. then these people, from, they came from the four corners of the earth that were in our home that we either, they, they never left here without some kind of refreshment, even if it was a milkshake or a, a soda. Yeah, well, I, I can, uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I, you know, that book, I've seen the book, and it's virtually a who's who of people in our hobby, of well-known people, scientists, you know, it, it's virtually a, a who's who of things. And when, you know, when it comes, you know, one of our funny stories that Rosario and I share, uh, you know, talking about the hospitality that Rosario and Jeannie show all their guests, I like coffee in the morning. Whenever I would visit Rosario and Jeannie in the mornings, she would make a pot of coffee for me. And it was always the delicious coffee, the most delicious coffee. But here's here's the thing. Rosario and Jeannie don't drink coffee. But they don't <laughs> they, they don't ever make coffee for themselves and yet Jeannie will make a pot of coffee for me and it's the most delicious coffee. <laughs> it's I just it just never ceases to amaze me, you know. Uh so, you know, it's it's tremendous. I mean, and like I said, I've seen the book. So uh, I, I know what Rosario was talking about. And it's it's an amazing thing that Rosario thought of doing and quite a collection. I mean, think about it. It's got all these people's autographs in it. OK, um, so talk about a, 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 a one of a kind collector's item, you know, but yeah. uh, I, I just want to go back to the Peruensis now because. You know, this South American annual, um, you know, back in the day, nobody knew anything about them. And Rosario was the first person, as far as I know, to write an article for a major aquarium magazine about this South American annual. And uh, why don't you pick up the story about, you know, you, you got the Peruensis from Henry Hessel, right? No, that I got from uh, Hugo Walters. He was oh, you got it from somebody else. Hugo, okay. Hugo Walters had a. Uh, he was a German guy. Uh, he's born in Germany. Nice man, and he had a, a store on South Orange Avenue in uh, South Orange, New Jersey, and he had a nice little store. It wasn't very big, but he always had a nice collection of uh, diversity, and uh, so we were. Bill Harcel was my best buddy at the time, and I think Bill died a few years ago. Uh, he, uh, him and I were there and Bill was a single guy yet. He was still living at home 
and I was no, I'm newly married with, with kids. I think I had, uh, yeah, I had two boys. Yeah, two boys at the time, Michael and uh, Robert and Michael. And so a pair of shoes for a baby at that time was like $5. So I went there. I had, I was making like $32 a week as an apprentice, a pattern maker. I still had, I was, let me see, it was 1955. So I still had a, maybe another uh, year or so before I became a, uh, uh, what you'd call, not, what, not say, what comes after the pattern? I was going for a, uh, like a master, I forget now. Like journeyman. a journeyman? Yeah, I, was, I would have been a journeyman, yeah. Once I reached five years, that's how long the apprenticeship stood. Anyway, it cost $5 for this pair. And I said, boy, I wanted that fish in the worst way. I want, I could cry I wanted that fish. I fell in love with it. It's and a very so, striking fish for the, yeah. your readers who don't know what a parawensis looks like. Joe, can you spell, you know, can you spell that for me? Can you, can you spell that for me? Because I've tried to throw some uh, some words on Google search, and it's kicking it back to me. So spell out parawensis. Uh, I, I didn't get that too clearly, uh, uh, Randy. Oh. You didn't come across too clear. I was asking so, Joe, or if you could, to spell out parawensis for me. Oh, it's a bad area. P e r u s s e n s i s I believe it. Did yeah, I get that right? Yeah, yeah, yeah that's it. One more time. Parawensis. P e p e r u s. No, it's like think of the word Peru. Got it. Peru, and then add and, to Peru e n s i s. There we go. Peruensis. Okay. 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 All right, yeah, we're, getting, we're, getting spe- we're getting spelling lessons here on the Aquarius Podcast, folks. You, that, yet another bonus educational uh, reason to listen to this. Uh, continue, please. Okay, so yeah. anyway, uh, it cost five dollars, and, and uh, I was really, I was like, the sweat almost came out of my brows. I don't know if I should <laughs> spend this five dollars. I mean, geez, I can get a pair of shoes. I mean, five dollars is a lot of money in in the fifties, and I wasn't too sure, but I guess. The temptation was too great. <laughs> the flesh down. is weak, Rosario. <laughs> and I was oh, I was so weak. I had it. <laughs> I love it. Bill had a pair. Yeah, Bill bought a pair because he was a single guy and he had no restrictions as far as the monetary uh, problems. I did. You know, me, and my wife, and I really struggled in the early days. And uh, so anyway, I I did buy the pair. <laughs> when I come home, I said to her, "I feel awful guilty." She said, "Don't worry about it." But anyway. It turned out to be an investment. I wound up breeding them, and I did the article for the aquarium magazine, and I got $25 for the article. So I made my $5 back, and I made $20 profit. That's awesome. <laughs> so, I mean, yeah. <laughs> you know, and, and, and then I got the pleasure of seeing my name in the book, you know, and it's in his aquarium uh, book as well. He put it later on in Exotic Aquarium Fishes. It's in there, too. He gives me credit for it. But we didn't have any idea at all what this fish was. And uh, what is this, Walter? A Hugo? I don't well, know. When he says the book, he's talking about the famous, just so it's clear, he's talking about the famous William T. Innes book. Uh, that's On what he's exotic, talking yeah. about. Yeah. Exotic aquarium fishes, yeah. Yes. And, 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 and uh, yeah, his name is in, is in that edition of the book where Innes first put 
the Peruensis in the book because that was not in the original edition. Of yeah, course, which which edition? Because yeah, yeah, I was gonna say my dating here. I'm, I'm, I was pretty sure that that originally came out. So what edition did Enos update that to actually include this particular fish in your article, Rosario? Oh, I don't even know anymore. It would have been around nineteen. I would say it would have been around 1956 or 57. Okay. Somewhere in there, yeah. Whatever edition yeah. came out in those years, I, I would say look in that, and you will see Rosario's name. And let me awesome. tell you, Innis did not name a lot of people. You know, his book is not chock-a-plot full of names, okay? So Rosario has a very uh, distinct uh, uh, honor there in being mentioned by the legendary, you know, you know, a lot of people call him the father of the American aquarium hobby, you know, being mentioned in, in, in Innes's book by name. And by the way, I did meet him later on. I was just a young kid. And, of course, I was in awe meeting him. I think I met him sometime around 1956 when I went to Philadelphia with Dennis Simonetti and uh, Bill Arcel. The three of us went down there, and uh, we went to the aquarium, and that's how we met Alan Fletcher and became friends with him. That's what our first meeting, and then, and then, uh, uh, and the rest is history. But uh, and how had... did you figure out? Uh, what I'm curious about is because uh, actually Rosaria and I, I don't, we, I don't think we've ever discussed this in any detail. What I'm curious about is how did you figure out how to breed this Peruensis successfully? Because there wasn't a, any information out there, really. Yeah, me too. It wasn't. I said to Hugo, I said, Hugo, what is this? He says, I think it might be a rivulus. And, you know, <laughs> I says, you know, maybe it is. I don't know. We think, well, because he didn't know. Because a rivulus is a South American uh, genus of killifish, but they're not annuals. <laughs> no. And I, I, I love that you're laughing and like you find humor in that because you're such a killifish nerd. <laughs> That's so great. I hope I hope people pick up on that. That like what makes Joe chuckle is like yeah, yeah. Well, throwing out yeah, the wrong right. genus on a fish is great. <laughs> sorry, sorry. Keep going. Go ahead. Well, anyway, sorry, Rosario. Go ahead. That's all right. So on that premise, I assume that well maybe it is a rivulus. But then I said we're not getting any eggs from this guy. Maybe it's an annual. It might be an annual. So I decided to put. He wants it in a tank. And sure enough, I went through, I, I, I devised a method, an innovation. I think people use it today, but see, here again, people forget how it's done. I would put a light underneath the uh, peat moss, and then I would gently swirl the peat moss and try to get the fines out of it. There's always fine dust in there. If you let it settle for a few seconds, the heavy parts sink down and the fine stuff still floats and I keep pouring the fine stuff off. Eventually you just have solid matter on the bottom. And then if you put a lamp or a light underneath the, the tray, which is usually glass or plastic, and you look with it, I use had a five power headpiece where you can magnify everything. And then you can look and you can see the eggs much clearer. Otherwise it would all the debris. If you have too much debris in the, on the bottom of the glass receptacle, by then, it's, it's kind of decipher uh, the eggs from the from the material that's on the bottom. So I saw I had a few eggs. I only had a few. I wasn't very successful. I had, I think, five eggs or something like that. So uh, uh, I had 
No, wait a minute. I take that back. I, I may have used something else. Oh, I know what it was. I got some, I didn't have any peat moss. Bill Harcel had peat moss. I asked Bill for some peat. He gave me some peat. I used his peat moss to, have, to, 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 to collect some of the parawances. And after a, a short period of time, I did look and I saw I had eggs. So I packed them away and I said, well, I was getting kind of impatient. I said, uh, I, no, I tried to hatch some. That's what it was. I did try to hatch some while they, had, they were embryonated. And they all came out belly sliders, which means... So you, so you that, kept them in water? Is that what I you kept, did? I kept them in water at first. Right. And, and they, they embryonated. And, and then after a, a short period of time, I said, well, I'm going to try to hatch them out. And I tried to force them out. And I got belly sliders. Now, to the people that don't know what a belly slider is, that mean, that's a fish that's born defective that has lacks an, an air bladder. All fish have air bladders, and that's how they get their buoyancy, and they can get to different levels. If the sac, air sac is not filled properly, or you have no buoyancy, it's like taking the life dust away from them. And so they swim, and then they fall back down, and they never amount to anything, so you have to really get rid of them. But anyway, so I had some belly sliders. I said, wow, this is not good. I said, I should, we have to maybe hatch them a little bit longer because they do come from soil that takes a long time to go through a desiccation period. And uh, so I, I decided to wait two weeks. And here I was very impatient. So after two weeks, I hatched them out. Now I got four fish. I said, well, I got four fish. Good. So what? I was lucky. I got a pair of parawenses. Guess what? I said, what's that other fish in there? I didn't know what the other fish There was another pair of fish in there. And they looked like a pair. But I didn't know what they were. And they grew up, and guess what it was? It was a pair of blood eye, which I never had. <laughs> it's just so, it just so happened Bill Harcel had some blood eye, and he was breeding them over peat moss. And he gave me the, he had this peat moss laying around for months. When he gave me so this, he gave peat, you used peat moss. He gave me used peat moss. Oh my god, which was that's bone. a big no no. That's a big killifish. <laughs> no, I was just gonna no, guess no, that that's probably god. that's probably a giant no no in the killifish oh, world. Oh, <laughs> absolutely. Are you kidding? Oh, and Belladai, what he's talking about, it's a Sinolebius that comes from uh, Argentina, Argentina Uruguay, yeah. whatever, and it's a completely it's different fish. fish from the Parowenses. There's no way you could mix. You know, it's a totally different fish. Now, it's been around a long time. A lot. I was one of the yeah, it's one of the first ones to come yeah. into the hobby. So, so let me let wow. me get this straight. So you had so you got the used peat moss, right? Um, you then you peat, then well, when I say when I say it was bone dry, there wasn't a bit of moisture. Right, in it, but right, these right. Eggs have, these so, eggs have a sheath around them, uh-huh. and evidently they they go through a pretty tough drying out period in the wild. And this may be a protective strategy that they have, that they have a sheath around the egg that protects the moisture from being completely uh, sucked out of it, so to speak. So when you, so that's why I got a pair. Of, I got a pair of blood eye. So from out the, of the two. yeah, so from the super dry peat moss, you then go yeah. and rehydrate it, put it in your tank with these peruensis, and then you then pull that peat moss 
and then no, the Pete Moss that the Pete Moss that Bill gave me. I said I needed Pete Moss. I didn't have any, so he gave me a handful of Pete, old Pete Moss that he had, and he didn't know it, but he had a couple eggs in there. So when he gave me, I put my eggs in there. Oh, okay, okay, gotcha. I hatched them. I got some. I got some parowensis, and I got two fish that were dark. I said, what in the world's name of these fish? I had no idea what they were, and then when they got bigger, I said, man, it's Bilotti. Okay. I don't have Bilotti, and it was from Bilotti. Yeah, I almost thought that they went through like a second hydration cycle where they got they got reimmersed and then re-dried out and then still hatched. That would have been pretty darn phenomenal. Well, it's not so much, it's not really a phenomenal, it's it's a strategy that all annual fish have. I know I spoke to Dr. Fersh, who was a very well-known breeder in Germany. He spent, him and his wife, Lottie, spent the week at, at our home back in the, uh, I guess it was in the 60s, because he, he came down from Canada visiting, and he stayed at our home. And I gave him some furzerai at the time, which no one had in Germany, so I gave him some eggs of Notobranchus furzerai, but... First told me personal conversation that he had eggs that were five years old and they were still viable. Of course, wow. they never hatched out, but that'll give you an idea wow. what can happen yeah. in the wild. They can last, <laughs> they can go through a couple of seasons and not hatch. And there's a reason for that, and it's a smart strategy on the nature's part because if there's an, a, a a a particular season which is devoid of any moisture at all. Say they miss the rainy season. Now what's going to happen if they didn't have that strategy to, to contain moisture in their cells? If they lost it, then the fish would be lost forever, right? So they may, they may go through two periods of dehydration. If they didn't have that strategy, uh, you know, locked into their system, why they would be lost. There wouldn't be any way for them to continue. But fortunately, modern nature is pretty wise, and that's a protective strategy that they use that they can hatch out at a later period of time and, and continue the species. So that's the reason why we haven't even... I've had eggs, too, that have lasted a long time. They just don't... They, don't just, they just, don't, uh, just don't develop. So from yeah, and just to show you how uh, how this this phenomenon of annualism was kind of very new to the hobby. I mean, Rosario just mentioned that he he got impatient and he wanted to wet these peruensis eggs after only two weeks. Nowadays, most hobbyists working with that fish they wait three months or more, depending on the temperature mm. that they're incubated at. Okay, so look at how. Rosario had to be instrumental in evolving this knowledge because, you know, back when he got these fish, nobody knew anything, okay, about it. Yeah, uh, really, we had no idea what they were. How so to, also, what? Rosario, because, again, uh, believe it or not, Rosario and I, we're, we're talking about this for the really for the first time in detail. Uh, your listeners are just hearing basically the way Rosario and I have conversations all the time. <laughs> Uh, because he's always telling me something new. Uh, he's got such vast experience. But so, Rosario, if I understand this correctly, so when you first got the Peruensis and uh, the guy from the German guy had told you they were rivulous, you were trying to spawn them in uh, breeding mops? Probably. I don't remember now. It's okay. so long ago. It's got to be. 
know, back yeah, because, in the early 50s. Because killifish breeders, as you know, Randy, we, we use these yarns, you know, we, we use yarn, mm-hmm. artificial yarn, to make spawning mops. And with uh, non-annual fish, uh, you know, they'll lay the eggs. Many of them will lay the eggs in these spawning mops that are a substitute for plants, you know. So I can just imagine Rosario uh, maybe having spawning mops and, and, and thinking these uh, parowensis were going to lay eggs in there. And, of course, they probably wouldn't. So uh, that's interesting. So, so Rosario, so how did you evolve from – how did you figure out eventually that maybe two weeks was not long enough? Well, I don't know. I did more and more incubation. Yeah, I did more and more experimentation. I found out a lot of annual fish you don't have to uh, you don't have to dry them out at all. Mm-hmm. And one of the key secrets is tannic acid. And the reason why a lot of fish hatch out in their belly sliders, tannic acid has to be present in the water system in order to give them buoyancy. I don't know how it works, but the chemistry is there, but the the tannin the tannins in the water, which is a derivative, or it's found in all kind of decaying vegetation, and you, that's why you see you go to South Jersey and go to the cedar swamps, and you'll see black water. The black water is tannic acid, or it's the tannins in the water. It doesn't have to be acidic, but those are the tannins that are extracted from plant matter. And for some reason, there are a lot of fish in the wild have to have that tannins for the eggs to become fertile, fertilized properly, and to hatch properly. And I found out that the tannins will hatch the eggs out. I use I use a small a little fertilizer, uh, not fertilizer, but those little uh, pea pellets that you get in a garden supply house or in a garden center. But you have to use... Peat pellets are, are devoid of any kind of fertilizer. It just has to be plain peat pellets. And if you use that as an extract, you put that in a, in a tray with eggs that are embryonated, and they don't have to be uh, incubated for a long period of time as long as they're, uh, the uh, uh, embryo is completely uh, mature. And you can put them in a tray and then put a peat pellet in there, and it'll hatch out the Peat will help pop them out because of the tannic acid in the peat pellet. And it works very good. You don't have to use microworms. You don't have to put them in your pocket. A lot of guys, they have all kinds of methods. And uh, you have to walk around with them and they're bouncing around, pops them out. No, you don't have to do that. All you need is put them in a tray of water and put a peat pellet in and it'll pop out the next day. No problem. And that's how I found out. I just... A lot of hit and miss stuff. And I said, you know what it is, too? Observation. You have to be, some some people have it and some people don't. And I'm not saying I have it, but I try to be observant as I can. And that means a lot. You, you be aware of it and then try to, try to think what's going on in a while and then try to apply it in the same system that's in a while and you apply it to your, your home uh, aquariums. You do the same thing. It usually can be pretty pretty sharp, or you can look it up and see what kind of rainfall they have. And uh, there's a lot of different ways you can just put two and two together and come up with uh, four and not three. <laughs> mm. <laughs>
Yeah, no, I know the, uh, you know, just kind of work-life balance right now. I'm not spending nearly as much time in my fish room as I need to um, just to do those observations and to really, you know, be in tune, get your hand in the water, you know, do extra maintenance on top of just the, the, the bare necessities to make sure that your fish are, are staying healthy and vibrant, you know, like I'm really missing out on that, that portion. And I need to dedicate more of my time to do that. But no, I totally agree with you on that Rosario that, um, you know, the observation and just putting time in the fish room is such a, such an important part. If you want to take it to the next level of just being an ultra successful breeder. Not only that, but a lot of people say, don't do any reading. You should read as much as you can. There's a lot of material out there. Like I wrote articles years ago. I mean, a lot of people don't realize, and this may sound like a boast, and I don't mean it should be. There's a lot of fish that I brought in, I hand carried in, that uh, I introduced to the hobby. And I see guys write articles about it, and they don't even mention anything going back to that distance. They just think, well, the fish is there. Well, it's not just somebody had to bring it in. And uh, in fact, I had a I got a little smile on my face when, uh, Joe, you could tell the story. Uh, it'd be better coming from you than from me, what Sal Silvestri said oh. at a <laughs> meeting nearby, and then he laughs. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I've, had, I've, had a, I've had a few people tell me that, but yeah, yeah. it's better I, I if Joe tells the story than well, me. Okay, Rosario. Well, the you know, at, at the last uh, Greater City Aquarium Society Zoom meeting, our guest speaker was a gentleman from uh, Connecticut by the name of uh, Sal Silvestri. Another and Italian. Sal, yeah. Uh, <laughs> Sal, like me, was also born in Italy. And uh, but any event, he's a uh, he's a top breeder. He he's one of the you know best breeders in the Northeast. And uh, he was giving us this wonderful program on some of the hard fish he's had to try to breed and some of the novelties he's had and stuff like that. So uh, he's telling this story about how at one time he was breeding uh, quite a bit of uh, Corydoras barbatus, which now are called Schlero Mystax or something like that. Yeah, barbatus. Hey, I'm finally breeding those. Yeah, mine are actually breeding and spawning. I've had a couple generations. Sorry for, uh, sorry great, for my shameless great. plug, Joe. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Well, so he, he, he said he was breeding them but he was having difficulty with the fry. He kept losing the fry, and, and he, he didn't understand why he was losing the fry. So he said, so I called God. <laughs> That's funny. He said, I called God, Rosario LaCorte. <laughs> and uh, he said that Rosario told him to try uh, putting a box filter in the fry tank uh, that had some crushed coral in it to buffer the water. And uh, Sal Silvestri said, well, after he did that, uh, he, he had no more fry loss, you know. But it was just such a funny line. We're all listening to him. And he says, so I called God. <laughs> 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 uh, but this is the kind of, you know, uh, you see, you hear this all the time when it comes to, you know, uh, Rosario and people who, who have called him for advice and, you know, and things of that sort, even, even, you know, uh, successful breeders, you know, uh, re refer to Rosario all the time. I mean, I, I can't even, I, I don't have, uh, as Rosario said, I don't have as good a memory as Rosario has, but I know that I've had many conversations with people 
and watched many a program uh, in which Rosario's name comes up uh, as someone who told them something, helped them with something, was a was a source of information. Um, and uh, I, I mean, you can just tell from this conversation we're having right now that what I mean about Rosario being living history, because he's he since the 50s, he's met and known just about everybody who's anything in, in the tropical fish hobby. Uh, he's corresponded with them. He's met them. He's spoken to them. Um, he, you know, he's gotten, he, he's, so he knows all these details about stories that the rest of us uh, can only know little snippets of it if we go through the old literature, if we go through the old literature. Uh, if we don't go through the old literature, we won't know anything, whatever, unless we listen to podcasts like yours, Randy, where, you know, you, you have, I, I know, because I listen to almost all of them, you have people come on and tell wonderful stories, oral, you know, tr- stories, of course, uh, but without them, we, we wouldn't have anything. At least we have these oral stories, even if they're not reduced to writing. Um, and, uh, you know, just, just to get back for one second, if I may, Rosario, I just, yeah, just want to get back to the Cardinal Tetra story for a second. Sure. Be, uh, because, um, you know, you were around, obviously, as, as we already know, uh, when, when all these events unfolded. And um, I don't know if you recall your reaction to when Tropical Fish Hobbyist came out, the issue that came out with the description of the Cardinal Tetra, naming it uh, whatever at the time, Caradon Axel Radi. Yeah, Caradon, um, yeah. Yeah, that um, you recall that that issue had something that no other issue of TFH had ever had before or since. On the ti- on the title page, you know, where the table of contents was, Axelrod published a date. <laughs> he, he put down a specific date that this magazine supposedly came out on, you know, whatever it was, February 13th, 1956. Whatever it was, I don't remember the date off the top of my head. But, you know, uh, I mean, even nowadays, if any of your listeners go look at an aquarium magazine, whether it's Amazonas or Tropical Fish Hobbyist or any aquarium magazine, you're, you're not going to find on the masthead a specific date like that. OK, you're going to find the month and the year, but not the date like, you know, August the 10th or uh, June 11th, you know, Mm -hmm. but for that particular issue, Axelrod did that. Why? Well, the supposition is that he knew that these other scientists that uh, Rosario mentioned were in the process of describing the Cardinal Tetra, and he wanted to beat them to the punch. And in fact, if you read the decision of the zoological committee, you know, the that that decides these things uh they they said that axelrod beat out the other description by one, one day, I think, day yeah. one day okay mm. it, it's a it's a hilarious story <laughs> yeah yeah well joe thank uh, you for uh, uh no. yeah thanks for coming back and and you know pro- providing that clarification on the dating thing because i know we'd kind of left that a little bit hanging and, uh, and hopefully listeners now have some closure on that one but 
we are approaching the hour and almost hour and a half guys so wow. <clears throat> i'm i'm personally thankful to to both you and rosario for taking time out of your day and you know sharing these wonderful stories um and hopefully kind of my my hope would be one i hope these are well received right like these these kind of this session of of joe and rosario just kind of going back and forth and really teasing out the history and things that rosario has done because i know that we've, we've only just started to scratch the surface i mean every couple of weeks i would love to put out one of these episodes where it's just you know me kind of sitting in the background letting you two go on and you know building that oral history via this podcast so that you know people that maybe you're only consuming your your tropical fish content through YouTube. Um, and you're always kind of wondering like, well, how do people know how to do that? Right. And as you pointed out, Joe, Rosario and people like Rosario that hopefully we could talk about some other, you know, some other people that have had some significant impact on the hobby as well that Rosario knows, you know, you guys are the ones that, that trialed and came up with this stuff to a point where now 60 years later, people can create YouTube videos and basically, you know, create beautiful 4k content and say, this is how you do something when you want to breed killifish. But this conversation is the root of, well, these are the guys that originally started doing that stuff in the 50s and, and maybe even prior, you know? Right. Yeah, well, if, you're, if your listeners, you know, uh, you know and, and you feel that, that that's worth hearing, uh, you know, I'm all for it. And, and I just want to say one little thing. You know, we've, we've spoken a lot about killifish, but the other, you know, fish that Rosario is a master at breeding He's like a world recognized, uh, you know, authority is is tetras, okay, among other things. Mm-hmm. But he he's a consummate tetra breeder who you know bred certain tetras. He's the first guy to bring them in, first guy to breed them. Something that almost very that something that very few people do even nowadays. So that's another thing you can explore yeah. with Rosario, you know fascinating stories about tetras yeah absolutely definitely um and honestly like i'm selfish even if people are like ah, i didn't care for that kind of format for your episode i'll say i don't care it's a free podcast i like talking <laughs> i like talking to joan rosario so i'm gonna do what i want <laughs> <laughs> all right guys well this yeah. has been an absolute pleasure thank you so much and hopefully we can connect again in a couple weeks and uh and, and bring another one of these episodes of the podcast very good. Nice talking to you, Randy. Yeah, thank Ros- you, Randy. Rosario, you take care. Give Jeannie my best. Uh, Joe, okay. it's been a pleasure. Tell Anita I said hi, okay. and uh, I'll thank talk to you guys you. later. Thank you I so will. much. Okay. All right. Have take a good care one. Now. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.